September 20, September 27, 1944, there was a 445th Bomb Group, made up of four squadrons, 700, 701, 702, 703, that flew. There were 39 airplanes that started out from the base, 35 of them, four of them were aborted because they have medical problems, 35 of them went to the target, 25 of them were knocked down in the air in four and a half minutes, Two, of, four of them crashed, three of them got back, and I don't know what happened. It's all on that door there. Backtracking a bit then, I suppose you just start with the, your name to the camera. Okay. Is this the camera? Yeah, this is. Yes. My name is... My, Full name is Herbert R. Schwartz, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z. My name is really Herb, that's what everybody calls me. I live in the outskirts of Kansas City, Missouri, in a place called Olin Park, Kansas. And Herb, for the rest of you who speak to me, that would be great. Okay, thanks, Herb. Can you tell me where you were stationed? I was stationed in Timberham, England, which is about 18 or 20 miles south of North. What was your reading? My Sorry. And you with? I was with a 445th Bomb Group, 700th Bomb Squadron. There's four squadrons to a group. And what were your initial experiences when you went to Well, unfortunately, I had an unusual experience because just before I got to Tivenham, they took the B-24 bomber and they changed it from a 10-man crew to a 9-man crew. They took the Sperry Ball turret underneath the airplane and took it completely off only in England, not in any place else, not in Italy, but they took it off because we had fighter escorts on most of our missions. And because it, that turret weighed so much and took so much additional fuel, fuel to, that they took it completely off and they changed it from a 10-man crew to a 9-man crew. So when I arrived in England, I didn't even have a position to fly. I trained for almost a year by the Sperry Ball turret. At that time, you couldn't weigh over 130 pounds. I weighed 126 pounds. It's the only way you can get into it. It's a circular ball that protruded from the bottom of the fuselage of the B-24. So when I got over there, my, not, my crew, I was late in getting there because I ended up in the hospital in Bangor, Maine on the way over, and I was about 10 or 12 days late at picking up my crew, but it wouldn't have made any difference because I didn't have a place to fly. They, they eliminated my position. So after I was at Tibbetan, the second day they sent a master sergeant armament man into the talk to me, and he took me out, and in 30 minutes he told me all about the tail turret, how to feed the guns, how to put in your radio equipment, how to put in your heading suit, how to do all the other things. And in 30 minutes, and the very next day, I flew the longest mission I ever flew in my life, which was to Munich, Germany, and I was on oxygen for 10 hours and 55 minutes. That was my first mission as a tail gunner, and, uh, and had never flown that position before. I was trained for one position for over a year, the other one I trained for 30 minutes. So, in a way, it's kind of interesting because I was so green and so stupid and dumb about combat that I didn't realize that they took all these bombers and put them up into the air and then they would form them and take two or three hours to form them 
to go ahead and apply their missions, but the formations they had to get together with, and my commanding officer, Colonel Jones, who commanded the 445th, we were flying above our own field. I didn't know it. I thought we were in enemy territory, and he flew a P-47, which is very, very similar to an FW-190, which is a German fighter. And I almost shot him down on my first mission because they said if anybody points or knows that, you put your guns on it. And I thought we were in enemy territory and all the time. That was my commanding officer up there to form a, uh, to get us all together so that we could go on and with the rest of the people onto the target area. Really kind of an experience. Because <laughs> if it hadn't been for those waste cutters who had, had several missions under their, their belt, that were behind the tail truck. They said, for Christ's sake, don't shoot that guy. That's our CO. <laughs> it was, anyway, it was just because of the fact that I was so stupid. I didn't even dream of it, some of the things that they did in combat. Can I ask you, how old you were then? 22. 22. Yeah, I celebrated my 22nd birthday at Cornhusker Hotel in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I picked up my new bomber, and I flew my new bomber Second day I was there at midnight. We left from uh, uh, from Omaha, Nebraska, which is I mean Lincoln, Nebraska, which is where we picked up our planes and we flew to Bangor, Maine. And in the process of going from from uh, uh, Lincoln to Bangor, I took the canvas turret off of my Sperry ball. It came up into the plane and then you lowered it down type hydraulically into the bottom part of the airplane. And I laid down to pick the canvas uh, covering off of the turret. And when I did so, I wrenched my back, which I had a bad back and I couldn't straighten up. I was just in a, like a semi-circle. And the fellas on the, on the plane took me and made a bed for me in the Bombay doors and lifted me into this place so I could lie down there. And they all went up front and had their sandwiches and smoked and did whatever they had to do. And they were about four hours coming back to check up. In the meantime, I was freezing to death. It was real cold there. And I had no way of calling anybody because there was no intercom there. And when they came back to get me, I was, God, I don't know how cold I could have been. And they pulled me out of that Bombay and put me up in the front of the airplane, carried me up there. But it was a horrible experience. Just terrible. And here again, it was all because of the fact that I ended up, when I got to Bangor, they had an ambulance pick me up right at the airport and take me right into the hospital. That's how my crew went ahead of me. And they were there for, they were there maybe 12 or 14 days before I caught up with them. So it's an interesting experience. And, and then when I was in Bangor, when I got out of the hospital, <coughs> They gave, they did everything for you. They had cars that even drove you around the race. They had people come in and make your bugs work for you. And that's where the University of Maine is, in Bangor. And they, because, I, although I was in the hospital, they wouldn't let me call home. But the, the nurse and the doctor talked to my parents in Kansas City while I was sitting right there, but they wouldn't let me talk to them because there was a point of debarkation and there was a lot of secrets in it. So when I got out of Bangor, they called me in and they said, if we don't get you out here in the next 72 hours, we'll send you across on Air Transport Command, ATC. And I flew overseas 
with about 20 nurses and about three generals, and I was the only enlisted man on the ship. And I was traveling under government per diem, which meant I had to pay for my own meals and everything. So we went from Bangor, Maine, to Presque Isle, Maine. They cut me up real, real late at night. Took me to Presque Isle, Maine, on a train. And that's where I left America to go over to Newfoundland. And when I got to Newfoundland, I was I had all of this goodies. This friend of mine that I was telling you about, Jeff Crystal, in station in Norwich. I had all of this. I was able to buy everything. I wasn't restricted as to what I could take, and I carried it all over England with me, oh, to England. But when I got to Newfoundland, somebody stole all my money and my wristwatch underneath my pillow, and I didn't even have enough money to pay for my meals for the balance of the trip because all my records were ahead of me, my pay records and everything else. And I had no way in the world of even surviving in Newfoundland because I had no money. So I went to a couple of the nurses that I met on the plane and I went to their quarters and they gave me money to pay for my meals so I got to my where my uh, records were gonna be to, so I could draw, draw money down from the government. Isn't it? a little bit different kind of an experience than most people would have. Yeah. <coughs> what, what was your first impressions of people in Norfolk? In where? In Norfolk, in Tibbenham. Oh, well, I didn't go to Tibbenham. Nobody went immediately to their airbase. They went to Ireland to take pre-combat training. And I was in pre-combat training for about a week or 10 days. Then I went from there to Scotland. No, I went to Scotland for a day and then to Ireland. Then I went to Tippenham and I don't know what I thought of. All I know is that my crew already had three or four missions under their belt and here I was sitting here without even a place to swim, to uh, fly. And it was a, just, a, just a terrible feeling because you were like a, on the outside looking in. You could, I had no place to go. I didn't know what I was gonna do. And, they satisfied that real quickly by finding me another position to fly. I want to speak to you a little bit about the castle mission. Now the castle mission, it's easy to find out all about that. That was a, just a terrible, terrible, terribly bad experience. And that was the worst mission that had ever been flown in any war by any group whatsoever. And nobody, all during World War II, nobody ever sustained that kind of a loss one mission for one group and four squadrons on the Castle mission. That's why it's so famous. Because we were flying to Castle Germany. We had our fighter escorts with us. And when we got right to the what they call the IP, the initial point, our pilot, Major McCoy, took our four squadrons of airplanes, which consisted of 35 airplanes. And for some reason or other, the navigator told him to turn left. And when he turned left, we were going away from the castle. We did not know this, but the navigator was creating the, uh, uh, a situation with the pilot to turn left. And when he turned left, two or three of the other navigators, including mine, knew that we were, had made a mistake. We, we, we should not have taken, gone left. And they begged, tried to get hit at Major McCoy, who was leading the group, back into the formation of the 8th Air Force. And he wouldn't go back, but a feeling that there was additional danger there because of other airplanes that were in the air, and he didn't want to take a chance. But he wasn't sure that he was in the wrong. And as he went, and the, 
And when he turned left and went on down the road, we dropped our bombs on a place about 23 miles from Ashland. And it was that 23 miles where our escort was waiting for us on the other side of the bomb run in Castle. They were waiting for us there, and we didn't show up, so it took them four and a half minutes to get from here to here. And that's what they did. We got hit by about 150 fighters. And that was all Germany had left. Germany had already been battered, beaten down, and this was apparently every airplane that the German Luftwaffe had in the air that day, and they were just sitting on there waiting for cripples, people that had problems with their airplanes or what have you. And here we come along with 35 airplanes with no escort. It was a perfect bomb. bomb so they came in in groves of airplanes and they formulated behind my turret, behind the group, and they came in nine and ten at a time at the tail. They always came to the tail because if they ever got the tail, tail turret out, they had control of the bomber. Nobody else could put their guns on them. No one. So they always wanted to go to the tail. And when they take nine or ten airplanes, one right after another at the tail, if you take your fingers off of those triggers for more much as five to seven seconds, you'll burn a barrel out. So you have to you have to have pretty good instincts to be able to hold your barrels that your two guns down as you were spitting it out to enemy fire enemy pilots. And the only reason the only reason why I got back is because I was flying off of the lead lead ship in my group and they knocked down all the rest of the airplanes behind me. So I had an extra minute or so, a minute and a half, to get ready for these guys when they came in. So it was a it was a you couldn't miss it. They were spitting fire at you, and they came in so close, it looked like they were on dope. And there was no way that you could miss it. But what happened is, on my ship, they knocked out two engines, the left inboard engine and the right outboard engine, on either side of the airplane, and they hit the tail. The tail is like this, on either side of the B-24. They hit the cable and the tail there, and this whole half a tail was just taken away from the airplane and hanging by a cable, well, by a steel cable, and it was doing this, and taking my turret, which is in the middle, and shaking it like this. Even under hydraulic pressure, you could not, that turret was going back and forth, shaking your guts out. So I got, I had time to when the next group of airplanes were coming in at my tail, I had time to get out of my turret and I had to underdo about five or six different things, electrical, radio, everything else. And as I got out the, on the catwalk, right behind my turret, I was down on my knees, and my turret was absolutely empty. So anybody coming in would figure that the turret was empty because it was shaking so damn badly. And when they came in, I could see them. I got plexiglass in front of me, and I had a black, I had a black helmet on and a flat suit. It was pretty hard for them to kill me, except on this area right here. And I darted up, and when those planes came in, all I had to do was grab my guns and just give a proof or two, and I would have knocked an airplane down. They were so close you couldn't mess it. So they thought it was empty, but all the time I was on my knees behind my turret, and I raised up with my guns, and just as they came in, my, my guns were going on these enemy airplanes. And that day I was able to get knocked down a 
one FW190 and one ME109. America, I met FW190 and the ME109 made messenger sticks. Those were two airplanes, but they'd already done all the damage to everybody. There were people parachutes and everything all around you. Planes going down and planes, one plane right next to me started to veer over to my plane and it was completely on fire. It caught in the front and in a matter of a few seconds the whole plane was one ball of flame and it came If I had screamed out to our pilot, if he had to take that plane upward, that plane could have come right into the side of us. And the evasion, evasive action took us up and it came right underneath us. Of course, there was nobody could get out of there. It was impossible. It was nothing but a big ball of fire. So it was just yeah. chaos in the sky. Oh, terrible. Did you even see terrible. any sky for it? Well, chaos. you have to remember that there were already a lot of damage. So yeah. The only reason, I told you, the only reason why I got back is because of where I was placed. Because there's no way you could sustain, sustain that kind of a lot of that number of airplanes. Not getting killed. It just—it just was impossible. Can you tell me again how many survived? Well, out of 35 airplanes, 25 of them were shot down in four and a half minutes. I—I I crashed in France after France had been retaken, and after we got—we came back through the Ruhr Valley with all this damage we had. We could only hold about 10,000 feet of, of air. And we had to throw everything off. All of our personal belongings, all of our radio equipment, everything, throw it off so that our plane would be able to stay at hold altitude. And when we came back, our navigator, I mean, our navigator says, well, you can all rest, you've been in friendly territory for three and a half minutes. And just at that time, as they said this, we were over the heart of Colbert's C-O-L-E-N-P-Z, Colbert's Germany, Germany, and that flak just came marching right up to our plane, and we, we thought we were we thought we were in friendly territory, and we also thought that we were going to be at Brussels, Belgium. But our navigator was evidently given one set of directions to the pilot who was going to another, end, and instead of being in Brussels, Belgium, we were close to Reims, France, and that's where we crashed. So it was common. Screwed up situation. Do you, do you remember what, what, what happened then? Well, we, we came into this tire paper runway, which was a, nothing but paper, roofing paper, that they used for a fighter strip. It was an American fighter strip, a P 47 Brentwood, and our, our plane just tore up right down the center of the runway. We knew that we couldn't land on asphalt because we had a bad gas with it. And we knew that we had to come in on either the ground, or we were going to have to barrel in because we, we couldn't land as such. We had no nose wheel or anything. And as we came down, we tore up this whole runway. Our plane came to it. We all jumped out of it. I was the first one out, naturally. And I hurt my back when I jumped out of there because somebody forgot to strap their gun in, their race gun. It came around and hit me in the back, but I got out of the airplane and I said, was going down the runway, I could see everybody else jumping out of that airplane. And we stayed there overnight and the next day, ATC, American <coughs> Transport Command, 
sent a P-47, I mean a C-47 over to that base and took us all back into town. Did you remember riding in Tinnahama? Oh yes, I arrived in Tinnahama about 2.30 in the afternoon on the 28th of September. What was the mood like as you arrived Oh, I don't I really don't know. I think we were just alleviated of the fact that we were still alive. It was just a, it was just a real bad experience. And when we got on the ground that morning, before we, that plane came over to us up, we counted over a thousand bullets, or a thousand bullets, and not one man of the nine men on that crew got even scratched. Not wounded, no nothing. We, we had all nine members of that crew able to get out of there. So it is the right yes. And uh, when we went back the next day, what? They fired us with a bunch of scotch and they kept us in briefing for several hours. But it was just a, a real terrible experience. And then when I went to my barracks that evening after having three or four drinks and eating a little food, and I went into my barracks. When I walked in, there were about 30, 35 empty bunks in there. So you knew how serious it was. All these people were killed or they were prisoners. So I was one of about six or eight people that lived in that barracks. The rest of them was empty. Just unusual, very unusual. And uh, uh, as I say, I owed an awful lot to the guy that flew that airplane because he was damn good, Lieutenant John French. And he, he's still alive. But on my original crew, the one that I got my job, lost my job, but they're all dead, all nine of them are gone. Three of them died this past year. Thank you so much for telling me that. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, no, that, it was, this was a terrible experience. And you want to know something? I put it all down in writing, because I kept it in a diary when I was over there. And just recently, in the last year or so, one of my closest friends' wives knew that I kept this in a diary. She had me send it back to her in New Jersey, and she turned it into a book by me. Everything that happened to me while I was overseas, and everybody that read that book, it's just, everybody's come back and said, God, they couldn't believe this book. All the things, all the materials, and all the facts I had in it, I reduced it all to writing. It was a 22-year-old writing a book, which to me was nothing. And even the, the language and everything else was so amateur. But everybody that read that book, everybody kept saying, I want a copy, I want a copy. So finally, I had copies of it made. <laughs> and the original diary is with Linda Dewey now. Her father was the one that was between, had a, at the GMMA, Castle Memorial Mission. And that was Can I ask a question? Is there a copy of that in the Memorial Library? No, there isn't. Would it be possible? Oh yes, I guess it would. I've got a copy of it. Sure, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's both personal and it's also about my leaves and the people I've met. And I have a I have a breakdown of every single mission, and I even have paid, I even was able to get friendly with a major in G two, which is intelligence, and I got all the aerial photographs of every mission I flew. Not, not written on the back of there's just a number, but the number refers to a number on a map and tells you exactly where that mission was and what, what our destination was. Would that have to be useful to us? Well, it would be... Yeah, I, have I, a, I can get a copy of the book. It just, it, 
I don't. If you're like everybody else, you'll say it's great, but it's not really. Not, it's, it's just the language in it is even terrible. I'm in Paris. I'm a college. I'm in my last year of college, and I wrote it like an admin. Anyway, I didn't read this book. I didn't read this book until 2006. The only person that ever read that was my father. The only person until 1993. Terry Moore, who is a good friend of mine, she was married to Howard Hughes. She was she was a very famous movie actress years ago. Terry Moore, and she read part of the book. And she knew Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart was in my group. He flew in my group. And she knew him. And she arranged for me to spend an evening with Jimmy Stewart and his wife in California after the war, which was one of the highlights of my whole damn trip. I mean, everything. And Would you like to tell me more about that? Well, it was, just, it was just a wonderful opportunity. She wanted me to, in 1993, to do a movie. She begged me to do a movie. She was a very famous actress. And she had the finances and everything else. And she wanted me to do a movie and, and I had to take off like 90 days and reduce everything to writing. And she wanted John Travolta to play my part. He called me from on, up in Canada where he was on, uh, where he was doing a movie. And he says, if Terry goes ahead and is able to get this movie done, he said, I would be glad to play part of it. He owns the B-24, one of the three that are still going in America, the three that are pliable. He's got one right in his backyard, and he's a pilot. He also has a commercial jet light in his backyard. But uh, he was in Kansas City about seven or eight months ago, and I had pictures made of him. And, and uh, through Terry Moore and other people in California that I knew, when he came to Kansas City, before he dedicated this museum, he came to me and we visited for quite a while and I gave him all these things having to do with the B-24 and the castle mission and everything else. And I put it into, I wrote him a couple of letters and put it into a binder and gave it to him because he wanted to read it. Whether he read it or not, I don't know, but at any rate, he was, he's very, very interested, particularly in antique. Uh, or older airplanes. That was an unexpected development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've had a lot of experiences from being a damn tail gunner. I just a lot of things happened to me, and uh, as a result of it, uh, I don't know. But just uh, a lot, just a lot of things. I've had people call me. I've had somebody in England who's writing a book that's called me a couple times and wants to wanted to come to Kansas City. Why? I guess because of the fact that there's not very many of us still around. Well, I'm very glad we've got you yeah. somewhere on the yeah. camera now. Well, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. We've got majority of everything you've got, I've told you. Okay. Particularly as far as that mission is the one that's really and truly been made very, very famous. Even Tom Brokaw wrote about it in his book, Greater Generations. He, re he, he refers to the castle mission there on one of his groups and what have you. Okay. So it's gotten a lot of notoriety. Anyway, if you'll help me get up. Thank you, sir. A little bit.